RT8K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Steve Dunthorne. Tonight's headlines. A deadly fire that claimed seven lives on Sunday reportedly broke out during a gathering to celebrate a birthday and the Hindi festival of Diwali. A second biotech company says it has produced a COVID-19 vaccine that's more than 90% effective. And researchers say at least a quarter of imported coronavirus infections here could be missed at the airport. More details are emerging on last night's blaze in Jordan, in which seven people died and more than a dozen were injured. A Nepalese group said the victims, who were all part of a family, had gathered to celebrate a birthday and the Hindu festival of Diwali. The Hong Kong Nepalese Federation said it's common to organise parties in private facilities and they're not, normally not open to the public. However, the group's chairman, Rana Ray, said festivities are generally not held indoors. In our traditional, we start the lighting from the down to up, how we go enter, from the main entrance to where we live. But in Hong Kong, uh, actually, uh, due to the place, uh, we just uh, stick it only the, our flat and room inside. Due to the event, the, the sport uh, shortage in Hong Kong, also economically, uh, the financially difficult, so they're going to organize a small club and house to gather uh, this family party. The blaze in a four-storey tenement has also turned the spotlight on fire risks in older buildings. Clinical trials in the United States indicate that a second company has produced a vaccine that can prevent coronavirus infections in more than 90% of cases. The American biotechnology firm Moderna says its vaccine appears to be effective among the elderly who are most at risk of severe symptoms from COVID-19 infections. Here's the BBC's Michelle Roberts. They've been looking at using the same technology as the jab we heard about last week, the Pfizer jab. So this is mRNA. It's a little bit of genetic code from the virus, the pandemic virus, that you inject in and it can teach the body how to fight off the real deal. So it doesn't give you an infection, but it does give you the tools you need to fight it off. Moderna says it still needs to evaluate its safety data, which it hopes to submit to regulators in a few weeks' time. The company says it aims to produce between half a billion to a billion doses by the end of next year. It can be stored at normal refrigerated temperatures, which makes it easier to deploy than the one developed by Pfizer and BioNTech. The president of Moderna, Stephen Hogue, said he was thrilled. The vaccine really is a terrific tool for stopping the pandemic and hopefully stopping the worst of the disease that people are facing. Uh, when you combine it with the news of last week of, of Pfizer's vaccine, you've got now two vaccines that are over 90% effective. Um, it really means, I think, we have the tools necessary to, to finally beat this virus back. Um, and I think that's probably the best news uh, of the day for all of us, is that there really are now solutions in our hands, and we need to deliver them to the people who can use them. A new study has found that COVID tests at the airport failed to identify one in four incoming travellers who were infected with the coronavirus. Researchers from the Polytechnic University studied 268 imported cases since September and found that 27 of them only tested positive later while they were observing mandatory quarantine. Researcher Gilman Sue says the relatively high miss rate is concerning. At the early stage of the infections, the viral load in the patients somehow will be too low, very difficult to be detected by the routine method, which is the RT Wutan PCR. If the viral load from the specimen is lower than 250 copies per mil, the assay will not able to detect the patient as positive. 
pilots and cabin crew from another of the SAR's airlines are facing a choice between deep pay cuts and losing their jobs. HK Express says it needs to make deep cuts to reduce its losses, as Joanne Wong reports. The low-cost carrier is following its parent, Cathay Pacific, and giving staff a choice between much-reduced pay and termination. The budget airline said it took the difficult decision to offer salary reductions of between 20 and 45 percent because of a pressing need to bring its losses under control. The cuts will be reduced when the airline is able to operate more surfaces. Ground staff will be asked to take 20 days of unpaid leave in the first half of next year. Management, including CEO Mandy Ng, said they will take a 15% salary reduction for the same period. Last month, Cathay Pacific cut more than 5,000 jobs as the COVID-19 pandemic takes a devastating toll on the aviation industry. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is just coming up to five minutes past 11. The head of the Medical Association, Dr Choi Kin, says the government should have consulted doctors over the plan to get them to force some of their patients to take COVID-19 tests. He has several concerns about the move, as Violet Wong reports. Dr Choi says he is worried that some people will be put off from visiting their doctors for fear of being made to take a coronavirus test. He says the authorities should have consulted the profession about the plan and doctors have now been left with no choice but to comply. On Saturday, Health Secretary Sophia Chen announced that doctors will be able to order their patients to take a COVID-19 test if they show symptoms. Any patients that refuse would risk a fine of up to $25,000 and six months in prison. On RTHK's Millennium Program, she was asked if a doctor would bear any responsibility if he or she failed to instruct someone to take a test and the patient was later found to have the virus. Of course it depends on each case, but for any kind of sickness, if a doctor is found to have a problem in their professional decision, the Medical Council has an existing mechanism to deal with that. Dr. Choi says Chen's comment appeared to be threatening towards doctors. The law has already been rolled out. There is no way we can avoid doing that. But it seems to me that it sounds a bit threatening. Dr. Choi also urged the government to draft guidelines for doctors in relation to what specific symptoms should lead to a COVID-19 test in order to avoid any arguments with patients. The father of a university student who died following an anti-government protest last November has urged anyone who saw what happened to his son to contact him. An inquest got underway into the death of 22-year-old Jaja Luck, who was found with massive head injuries in a car park in Chunkwino and died in hospital four days later. Jimmy Choi reports. Speaking to the media on the first day of the inquest, Chow Chi Lok's father urged people who witnessed the incident to contact him personally. He said he just wants to help his son a little bit more so he can rest in peace. I just hope we can find out the truth or something closer to the truth, he said. Mr. Chow told the coroner's court that his son, who was a computer science student at the University of Science and Technology, had left home late on November the 3rd wearing a black T-shirt and carrying a backpack. He said he told his son to be careful but got no reply, explaining to the court that he made his warning after seeing on the news that there were protesters and police at Shentek Estate near their home. Mr Chow said that at around 12.45am, he messaged his son telling him that tear gas was being fired. Around two minutes later, his son replied, telling him to close the windows. 
The student was last seen online at around 1 a.m., his father said. An hour or so later, friends of the 22-year-old came knocking on the door to say he had been injured in a fall. A primary school teacher who was struck off last week for making up historical facts has acknowledged he made mistakes, but says he was actually hired to teach English and computer studies. Damon Pang reports. The teacher admits that he'd make a mistake by telling second-grade students that the opium wars were waged against the Qing dynasty by Britain to remove opium from China. But speaking to the media on condition of anonymity, he says he doesn't think the error is serious enough to warrant the authorities striking him off as a teacher for life. He says he thinks the matter has been politicized and accused the Bureau of nitpicking, pointing out that the error was made in a 15-minute video covering Hong Kong history. He added that he had only been teaching for a year and had good performance ratings from the school, which he said had intended to renew his contract before the ban. The teacher also says he would like to say sorry to students and parents over his mistakes. In response, the Education Bureau criticised the teacher for speaking anonymously. It said he had a right to appeal, but it said it was regrettable that he was putting pressure on the Bureau to make a particular decision. Eight Hong Kong media groups have urged the chief executive, Carrie Lam, to meet them to discuss their concerns over the prosecution of RTHK's Bao Choi. They say the case against the journalist is not in the public interest and must be dropped. Maggie Ho reports. In the letter, the groups say the authorities' action against Ms Choi has sparked fears among the SAR's journalists that they could end up in prison simply for doing their job. It calls on the government to honour its pledge to uphold press freedom, respect the right of reporting, promote free access of information and protect the public's right to know. The groups say the case against Ms Choi has already created chilling effects in the media, with reporters fearing they might be jailed for carrying out investigative journalism. The RTHK producer was charged earlier this month with violating traffic laws by allegedly making false statements when conducting vehicle registration searches. The searches were part of the public broadcaster's attempts to trace the perpetrators of the July 21st gang attack in Yunlong last year. The Consumer Council has called on food manufacturers to step up quality control after finding fragments of insects in all of the pre-packed pasta that it tested. Violet Wong reports. The council said a macaroni product from Nissin Foods contained as many as 548 tiny insect fragments per 225 grams of pasta. 23 of the 35 samples also contained hair and bits of metal and plastic. Lo Wing Cheng, vice chairman of the Watchdogs Research and Testing Committee, said consumers do not need to worry as long as they cook the pasta thoroughly. The council's chief executive, Gilly Wong, meanwhile said pasta producers should do more to ensure the products are sanitary. You have to check, you know, the quality of the wheat about, you know, its hygiene level. In response, Nissin Foods said the council's findings should be an isolated case, as they had sent the same batch of the product to a laboratory in the United States and found it contained far fewer foreign particles. The council also found that former toxins are common in the pasta samples, warning that excessive intake could result in fever, stomachache, diarrhea and vomiting. The consumer watchdog said while 23 samples contained the toxin at levels lower than the EU standard, a three-year-old could ingest up to 80% of the maximum daily intake level by eating just half a bowl of pasta.
Hong Kong is mulling shortening the time between IPO pricing and share listing from the current average of more than five working days to as few as one. Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing is suggesting this could be done by introducing a new digital platform to replace separate channels and paper-based communication. The bourse operators launched a two-month consultation on the proposal. Its chief executive, Charles Lee, says modernising the IPO process can help cut risks for market participants. Whether you're an issuer, whether you're a shareholder, whether you're an investor or underwriters, there is no reason why all these market participants are made to expose to the risk for a reasonably long period of time. Because a lot of things could happen during that period of time. And I think uh, we really need to find a way to modernize the whole process and make it easier for everybody involved. The new system could be implemented in the second quarter of 2022 at the earliest. And the bourse operator is also proposing only having investors pay for shares after they've been allocated. It says it hopes this can lower the impact of IPOs on Hong Kong dollar liquidity as Ant Group's failed listing demonstrated. Here's Mr Lee again. Every time we have an IPO, we lock up sometimes billions or tens of billions of funding in a very artificial manner without any necessity in real economic life and lock them up and then making our retail investors having to pay the cost of it. And there are many other complexities that flows from it. So we are changing that. We are making it much simpler and much easier and much more scalable. In sport, Hong Kong's Shibon Hockey has set another Asian record in the pool at the International Swimming League in Budapest, helping her energy standard team into the competition's grand final. Atom Jiang reports. The reigning champions Energy Standard had won nine races on the first day of the semifinals and Hong Kong's Siobhan Hahi got them off to a dominant start on day two. She led from the front in the 100 meters freestyle, securing her second win in the event in this year's competition. Her time of 51.12 shaved another two hundredths of a second off her own Asian record, which she only set two weeks ago. It's the fourth time in all that the 23-year-old has broken the continental record in the past month, dragging it down from the time of 51.59 set in mid-October. And she wasn't done there. She also took the 200-meter freestyle in 1 minute 51.36, just two tenths of a second off her own record in that event. A reminder of our top stories tonight. A deadly fire that claimed seven lives on Sunday reportedly broke out during a gathering to celebrate a birthday and the Hindu festival of Diwali. A second biotech company says it has produced a COVID-19 vaccine that's more than 90% effective. And researchers say at least a quarter of imported coronavirus infections could be missed at the airport. The news from RTHK. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's NewsWrap programme. Polytechnic University researchers have found that COVID tests at the airport couldn't pick up at least a quarter of imported cases because of possible false negatives. They studied more than 250 such confirmed cases since September and found that at least 27% were only confirmed when the patients were in quarantine. One of the researchers, Gilman Sue, says he's surprised by the worryingly high percentage. 
Jim Gould asked him why there were so many false negatives. Well, usually um, the patients at the very early investment stage, the viral load would be, I mean, too low to be detected by um, the necropsy test. So maybe, I guess, the travel we can in fact during, uh, uh, maybe on the flight or uh, at, uh, at the trans- uh, transit port. So uh, if such a very short uh, uh, period of infections, I mean, when they are up on a viral, they may not be able to capture by the aggressive test at the airport. So, so uh, by that time, I mean, it would be negative. Are we using the right type of tests at the airport? Is there another test that could be used? Yeah, so actually, well, otherwise we have to capture the, the, the gas at the airport like, for three days, but I think it which is uh, infeasible. So uh, we have admit that actually, uh, although we have a lucrative test at the airport, but still well, it help us to uh, detect around 60% of, of the case. Well, well, up to 20-something 20, 20 to 30% of the case may somehow will force negative and then go to uh, our community. So that's why we have to tighten the compulsory quarantine measure, make sure that, I mean, uh, uh, such case will not lack into our community. Yeah, I understand you're concerned about uh, family and friends being able to, to visit people in quarantine. So uh, should that be stopped? Yeah, definitely have to. So uh, I, I will uh, request the government should explore with uh, the hotel industry, see whether they can establish uh, the quarantine hotel such that all the inbound travelers can, I mean, stay in uh, a designed uh, hotel. So it is more easily to monitor, I mean, any visitor, and we have to stop that. And then uh, such uh, quarantine hotels c- uh, could have uh, better security, presumably. Exactly. Uh, you're also talking about um, designated transport uh, from the airport to, to quarantine places. Right, right. So we, we, have, to, we have to avoid um, the inbound traveller to take uh, the public transport because this is also an opportunity for them to contact with um, the general public and spreading the virus. So if we have a, 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 I mean, a designated hotel, so the point-to-point traf- I mean, traveller may be easier to be arranged. And is, is two weeks a long enough time for the quarantine period? Well, I think uh, based on uh, the scientific data, most of uh, I mean, uh, m- most of the case, the incubation period is uh, uh, within one week. So I think fourteen days is sufficient. Of course, we some we have some very extreme case that the, the incubation period as long as twenty something day. But I think it will be, be too lengthy. I mean, well, unreasonable to keep the the inbound traveler. I mean, for twenty something days. So 14 days, uh, if we actually uh, conduct more like uh, deep saliva tests, for example, when the guest staying at the hotel at the third day and also the 12 days, so two separate tests, I think we can able to detect uh, any, uh, even for those asymptomatic carrier. Civil society groups are calling on LegCo's Constitutional Affairs Panel to reschedule a public hearing over a government report to the United Nations. The hearing was cancelled by the panel's chairman, the DAB lawmaker Holden Chow, who cited public health concerns and said only written submissions would be accepted. The director of Human Rights Monitor, Lawyer Kai, spoke to Anna Marie Evans about their frustrations with the arrangement. Well, UN requires that all reporting process required by various human rights treaties have to be follow some kind of tripartite participation principles. That means the government itself, the treaty body experts uh, and NGOs 
non-governmental organizations uh, would meaningfully uh, participate in the whole process. And the process involved real uh, substantive discussion of policy, review them, and then assess them, and uh, also taking bearing in mind of the UN criticism and recommendation yes. uh, to come up with uh, some form of procedures, uh, steps to improve the uh, human rights situation. So it is a tripartite process. And it's a meaningful discussion. It's not just cosmetic saying that, oh, I've got your letter, I've got your paper. Yeah, okay, yeah. And that's a stop, okay? And in the past, the LegCo has been doing its job by requiring the Hong Kong government to send high-level representatives, officials, to join this kind of panel meeting in which uh, NGO would be able to fully discuss and explain their position and then post questions and recommendations. Yeah, it has been abruptly cancelled just two days ago. So have civil society groups been able to put together written submissions in such a short amount of time? Well, I think some NGO does uh, do that, but we were at the moment of uh, consideration whether we should do it when they called us. And because unless there's meaningful meeting, discussion, exchange, it won't be... Uh, meaningful to just help them to say uh, that they can't, they have already consulted NGOs. Yeah. But the uh, uh, actual uh, process doesn't really meaningful. So are you going to drop so, out or are you taking part? Well, we, we have dropped out. Right. Uh, uh, but before that, we have given them the chance. Uh, we asked the staff uh, of uh, the secretariat to inform the chair that uh, we have reservation on this decision and we want to discuss with him and ask him to call me back. And I have not got uh, Mr. Charles' reply. Perhaps he feel that uh, it's difficult to explain the reason. Anyway, because the failure, we do not mean you don't want to help uh, give them some kind of uh, facelifting, whitewash uh, excuses, saying that uh, they have already consulted NGOs. And even in the government report, it is clearly stated that uh, they involve NGO and so, but uh, you can tell that even these kind of uh, political hearing, we don't really have the chance to have meaningful dialogue. And the formal channel, that is the Human Rights Forum, uh, under the Constitutional Affairs Bureau with NGOs, uh, which uh, have been held regularly in the past, uh, has been suspended. And none of these meetings have uh, happened uh, in almost two years already. And this is totally unacceptable. The Polytechnic University Student Union plans to screen two documentaries about last year's police siege of its Hong Kong campus at a restaurant in Kowloon Bay. That's after the university banned the screenings on campus. Tomorrow marks one year since the siege of the PolyU began in the midst of violent clashes between anti-government protesters and police. Joe Choi, a member of the Student Union, told Janice Wong why the school had refused to screen the documentaries. From their email, they think that it is a misuse of our SU news to hold the screenings for two so-called level three films, and they think it is inappropriate to film uh, level three films uh, inside the campus. What does it mean by a level three film? That is like a R-rated film 
and uh, foreign countries' standard of uh, rating a film. However, in our proposal, we have, uh, we have actually adopted policy to ensure that uh, we will check students' HID to ensure they are uh, above uh, 18 years old, to ensure that uh, we don't violate any rules for organizing the screening. This is obviously a completely based on political suppression. However, for us, we have the responsibility to hold the screenings of these two films because these two films are actually recordings or documentaries about the history of the siege of Polio one year ago. And we could not let the government or let the school try to wipe out the history just by, you know, not allowing us to hold the screenings inside the campus. All right, and what, what do you plan to do now? I mean, uh, will the uh, union go ahead with the screenings? Yeah, because we bear the responsibility to, you know, let the history to be passed on. So uh, after a series of meetings and discussions, so we will now try to move the venue to for the screenings outside the campus. And luckily we have uh, support from uh, local restaurants, so we will uh, move the venue to Kowloon Bay and we have restarted the application procedure yesterday as well. All right. But will this be violating any uh, social um, gathering um, restrictions currently in place? We will conduct site visiting today and trying to, you know, comply with the social distancing rule. And however, we would actually, that is, uh, we would try to close the venue and it would become a private area at the, at the moment. But however, we still, you know, apply the rule of social distancing as well. The head of the International Olympic Committee says he's confident the postponed Tokyo Olympics will take place in front of spectators next year. The Tokyo Games were originally due to start in July, but were postponed for a year due to the coronavirus outbreak. More than 11,000 athletes from around 200 countries had been scheduled to take part in the Games, now due to begin in July 2021. Earlier, Anna-Marie Evans spoke to Julian Ryle, our Tokyo correspondent, about the visit of the IOC president, Thomas Bach. He's here mainly to uh, reassure everybody that the Games are going to go ahead next year. I think that's the prime motivation for him being here. He's had talks with uh, the uh, Prime Minister of Japan, Mr Suga. He's also uh, met with uh, Yuriko Kuike, the Governor of Tokyo. And uh, the message coming out from all sides here is that Games go ahead next year no matter what. Even if there is no uh, cure, even if no vaccine for, uh, for, for coronavirus, the Games will go ahead in some form. So what, are the, what kind of toolbox are they putting together to ensure that that happens? The primary concern is obviously getting sure, making sure that uh, anybody who comes here, whether you're an athlete, whether you're an official with the Olympic Committee, or whether you're a spectator, has a vaccination, has been vaccinated. Um, that's what they're aiming for. Obviously, the hope is that uh, the vaccination is uh, perfected in the coming weeks and months, and that then people, when they arrive here, will feel safe. At that point, they can begin to have large uh, numbers of spectators at the, uh, at the events. And, of course, that is something that the IOC has been uh, committed to for a long, long time. It is desperate to make sure that these venues are all full of people having a really good time and enjoying the, uh, the entire spectacle of the Olympics. Um, obviously, if uh, an, an effective vaccine is not completely available or if there are problems, um, then other plans have to come into play. Um, there, is, uh, there are discussions underway 
about how that might happen. But uh, one of the one of the plans I understand um, is for uh, all the athletes to be uh, to be tested on a daily basis. Anyone coming into uh, uh, arenas uh, also to be tested. Um, it'll be a massive undertaking, but this is the com- this is what they're committing to. Yes, I wonder actually, with you know more than eleven thousand athletes from around two hundred countries, whether this is going to be the first major large event to either test the COVID vaccine or test without, you know, going ahead without a vaccine. I think it will have to be. This will be the the, the, the test bed for for everything that follows. Um, Tokyo did host a minor uh, gymnastics event uh, last week. Um, it was uh, athletes from from a handful of countries, but again, they were testing the uh, the measures that were were in place um, to make sure that they work on a smaller scale, and then those can be obviously scaled up uh, or when the main event starts next year. Now, Olympics are obviously prestigious. I mean, you remember London in 2012, um, to Beijing in 2008. So they, they bring great sort of kudos to the country hosting, but they're also enormously expensive. I mean, is Tokyo going to be sort of left massively in debt? Uh, you know, are there lots of people uh, in Tokyo behind it? Should it have to cancel? I think that um, the numbers when the, the government first came out, uh, when they won the bid, the numbers, most people assumed that they were going to be slightly under what the final figure was going to be. I understand that it always happens that way at the Olympics. Very rarely uh, do these events come in under budget or even on budget. Um, but uh, yes, the numbers will have been, uh, been ramped up further by the fact that Japan has had to delay. Um, there are all sorts of complications. Nothing like this has ever been tried before. Nothing like this has been experienced before. Um, I think the people, of people, the people of Japan are generally behind uh, the event going ahead. Um, I saw a report said that uh, 37% of, people, of residents of Tokyo still want the Olympics to be held in their city next year. Um, 31% say it should be delayed again. I don't really think that's an option. The IOC and Tokyo have both sort of ruled that out fairly fiercely. Um, and 24% say that it should, that it should be cancelled outright. So, you know, I, I think that the, the sense is it should go ahead and that it will go ahead quite what format it takes in its final uh, iteration remains to be seen no i mean thomas bark is very sort of adamant that he's not there for contingency measures meaning you know having a look at other options other than holding the olympics as planned Absolutely. I think this is a, a very much a, uh, a propaganda visit almost, that uh, he's here, he's alongside the Japanese government, he's working very close with their officials here, and that come hell or high water, this will happen. Those stories were part of the NewsRap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Steve Dunthorn from our newsroom. Digital TV broadcasting will be fully implemented soon. Tell your friends and relatives quickly. From December 1st, analog TV sets won't be able to receive free TV channels. Act quickly to add a set-top box or switch to a digital TV set. Eligible households in need can apply for the Community Care Fund Digital Television Assistance Program. Call 2922-9230 to learn more. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to remember. Remember. The time is now. Time for nostalgia. 
with Ray Cordero all the way until 1 a.m. Richard Clayderman at the piano. the famous, well-known Moon River, played by Richard Clayderman at the piano and his orchestra. Let's welcome Jim Reeves. I love 